The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host, and today is Wednesday, and we're going to have Peter, uh, Dr. Peter Hammond, on a day earlier. The reason will be quite clear in a moment. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the reason, folks, that we are recording with Peter a day earlier and broadcasting a day earlier is because the title of today's show is The Real Story of 11th of November and Remembrance Day. Today is, of course, the 11th of November, which is why we're putting the show out today. We will return to Thursdays as of next week. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Well, 11th of November is packed full of meaning for anyone whose relatives fought in the world wars and for all who had the privilege of growing up in Rhodesia because 55 years ago, on Thursday, the 11th of November, 1965, at the most solemn moment of the 11th hour of Armistice Day, Ian Douglas Smith, the Prime Minister of Rhodesia, signed Rhodesia's unilateral declaration of independence from Great Britain. And, of course, throughout the English-speaking world, the 11th of November is observed as Remembrance Day, to solemnly recall the end of hostilities of World War I at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. And so in time, this came to be observed as Memorial Day for all who died in both world wars and in other subsequent conflicts. And where I'm living, Cape Town in South Africa, at the southernmost tip of Africa, the only city I believe that's astride two oceans with the warm Indian Ocean and the cold Atlantic Ocean meeting around what used to be called the Cape of Storms, because we do have hurricanes here for good reason, obviously, uh, but we prefer to call the Cape of Good Hope. This is where the uh, practice of the uh, two-minute silence actually began, too, because in Cape Town, we have had since 1815 a noonday gun that uh, the uh, one of the uh, guns at the battery on Signal Hill, which dominates Table Bay Harbor, has always fired at noonday to indicate uh, for ships out at sea and for anyone on land to set their clocks and watches uh, to the exact noon. And, uh, of course, the battery also fired a signal cannons uh, to indicate if a ship was entering Table Bay um, uh, or if, uh, for example, uh, there was an ambassador coming that get the 19-gun salute or for Monarch it would be the 21-gun salute and so on. So um, as we had this practice already, the noonday gun, 
And after the Battle of the Somme, the mayor of Cape Town, uh, Harry Hands, Sir Harry Hands had lost a son in the Battle of the Somme. He proposed that when the noonday gun sounded in future in Cape Town uh, after 1916, that everyone should stop what they were doing for three minutes. And uh, there would be uh, complete silence, everything stopped. If a person is at work, they would stand up at their desk and observe three minutes of prayer. They were to uh, remember those who had died, they were to pray for those who had survived and were doubtless scarred, and uh, to pray for those who were left behind, the family members back home. And uh, this three-minute silence was observed for the rest of the war. Now, uh, at the end of the war, uh, it continued in Cape Town that at the noonday gun, people were still called to pray, and at the end of the uh, two minutes, there would uh, then be a, a reveille sounded from Green Market Square uh, with a bugler. And, uh, of course, after the war, uh, they weren't praying. Uh, they dropped one of the minutes after the war, so it was one minute to remember those who died and one minute to thank God for those who had survived and pray for those who who were um, dealing with, with loss. So this uh, practice, which was uh, entrenched in Cape Town, was recorded in a letter to King George V, the head of the British Empire, and uh, by a famous South African who wrote uh, the book um, on Jock of the Bushveld. So uh, Sir Percy Fitzpatrick, uh, who is at that stage a member of Parliament, uh, the author of uh, Jock of the Bushveld, uh, he wrote to the Emperor uh, King George V and informed him of this practice in Cape Town and said, as we're approaching the first anniversary of the end of the First World War, <clears throat> 11th of November 1919, he recommended perhaps the empire would consider this practice. And so King George V sent out a notification to all parts of the empire that on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1919, on the uh, anniversary of the ending of the First World War, uh, everyone was to stop what they were doing, vehicles stop, people stop, pedestrians, people to workplace, and they were to pray for two minutes um, to remember those who had died and to pray for those and thank God for those who had survived. And so uh, this practice, which began in Cape Town, uh, was extended around the world. And interestingly, also in Durban, which is part of South Africa too, the Memorial Order of the Tin Hat, the Moths, uh, was also founded in 1919. And uh, in fact, the Moths continue to this day. And just this week, I've I've had a meeting at the Moth Hall in Fishhook with uh, a lot of Rhodesian veterans in particular. And uh, previous Sunday, I was, I was leading the, uh, doing the chaplaincy duties for the Remembrance Service for Rhodesian veterans of, of the Bush War up in Rhodesia. And uh, uh, I'm a member of the Memorial Order of the Tin Hat too. Although the moths were started for veterans of the First World War, those who had actually been in combat, hence Memorial Order of the Tin Hat, it uh, later included people who had fought in the Second World War, then the Korean War, the Malayan conflict, and the Rhodesian conflict, the Bush War in Angola. And uh, uh, now uh, they've, they've extended it to several of the other wars as well. So the, the moths is now a worldwide phenomenon. Interesting that they both started in South Africa, just like the Scouts did, because Baden-Powell, in fact, got his whole ideas for the Scouts in Rhodesia and in 
South African during the Anglo-Boer War, and he modeled the ideal scout on uh, one of the veterans of the Shangani Patrol in Rhodesia of 1893, and uh, just uh, and that would have been the, the American scout Durham, who was uh, just the ideal of what a scout should be in, in the minds of of uh, the um, <clears throat> uh, Major Baden Powell, uh, who founded the Scouts, so and the Gold Guide. So interesting the connections between. Uh, different parts of the British uh, Empire and Commonwealth and uh, the English-speaking world today, links to Rhodesia and links to South Africa. And during my missionary travels over 42 countries, I've been struck by how many hundreds of war memorials there are throughout the world. Every town and village in the British Isles that I've been to and every town and village in Rhodesia and South Africa have memorials to the fallen of World War One and Two as they called the Great War and then later World War II. Even at Victoria Falls, close to the new statue of Dr. David Livingston, erected in 2005 on the 150th anniversary of David Livingston discovering Victoria Falls and naming it and ma mapping it. So the, the famous David Livingston monument, which was erected on the centenary in 1955 on the Rhodesian side, there's now one on the Zambian side on the 150th anniversary uh, and that was erected in 2005. And there's a war memorial close to the monument of David Livingston listing the names of people from northern Rhodesia who fought and died for Britain in the First World War. At Milton High School in Rhodesia, where I, I did my schooling, we would be daily reminded of the large number of past students who'd given their lives for king and empire in the First and Second World Wars. There were numerous wooden rolls of honor on the walls of our halls engraved to the names of past pupils and the dates of their death. Now, this is in Bulawayo uh, in southern Rhodesia. And when I visited the battlefields in Ypres in Belgium, uh, I've been struck how many Hammonds are recorded on the rolls of honor on the walls of the war cemeteries. And there are many war cemeteries near Ypres for soldiers of the British Empire. And I've by no means visited all of these cemeteries, but I have visited the six largest. And I've counted over 65 Hammonds listed as killed in action in that one theater of the First World War, Ypres in Belgium. Later I learned from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission that 480 Hammonds died fighting for Britain in the First World War. Now numerous of these memorials have this scripture etched into the stone, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the words of Jesus in John 15, verse 13. Other memorials declare the words of Jesus in John 12, verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Seven, no, uh, six years ago now, uh, in 2014, during a mission to England, I saw the beginning of the Tower of London Memorial for those who fell during the First World War. I was speaking at a conference marking the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War. And so beginning on the 4th of August, 1914, which marked the 100th anniversary of Britain's declaration of war against Germany, which launched World War I, 888,246 ceramic poppies were planted by volunteers in the moat surrounding the Tower of London. This living, evolving memorial was entitled Blood Swept Lands and Seas of Red. And this evolving memorial marked the number of soldiers who fell for the British Empire in the First World War.
888,246. Every evening, last posts were played by Bugle at sunset, and names of those who died in the First World War were read out to the crowds. Now, I saw the beginning of this in August, and it, it was a very moving and gripping, and my father served as a bombardier in the Royal Artillery during all six years of the Second World War. And much of the Second World War, my father served in what was first known as the Western Desert Army, later became the Eighth Army, under Field Marshal Montgomery, most famously, in North Africa. So my father was a bombardier who operated the 25-pounder. And he was involved in the Battle of El Alamein. And although my father was a very patriotic Englishman in Rhodesia, he had an extremely high respect for Field Marshal Irwin Rommel in Africa Corps. And he called him an honorable enemy, and he called the North African Desert Campaign the Last Gentleman's War. Now, the Eighth Army is also involved in, in uh, Italy uh, during the campaign there, and he, he uh, was involved all six years of the war. And on a number of occasions, I remember my father becoming quite agitated and angry over distortions in Hollywood films that depicted the German Africa Corps committing atrocities. Rubbish, he had declared. He said, the Africa Corps were gentlemen. No such atrocities ever happened in North African campaign. It's absolute rubbish. And it deeply offended my father to see the enemy he highly respected portrayed in such a dishonest light. And on several occasions, my father would explain that he could never understand how Britain had ended up fighting against the Germans and for the French. He made the comment, the Germans should never have been our enemies. Historically, our real enemies have always been the French and the Russians. There wasn't much political insight from my father, but he was just echoing a, a view that I've heard from many soldiers at, at moth shell holes uh, around the world, where uh, I've heard military veterans from Rhodesia who shared the same conviction. And a common sentiment was, we should not have fought against the Germans. We should have joined them in clobbering the communists in Russia. And I've heard similar sentiments from British and Canadian, Australian and South African veterans at moth shell holes. The first time I saw Prime Minister Ian Smith, it was as a young boy of 14 years old, standing outside the Bulawayo Club in Rhodesia, and I'd heard from my father that the Prime Minister was going to visit. So expecting some kind of impressive entourage, I don't know what was in my mind, but perhaps I was thinking of the Coldstream guards with their tall bearskin hats and red outfits outside Buckingham Palace, and uh, I was kind of surprised to see a rather humble Peugeot 404 park in front of the Bulawayo Club and outstepped Mr. Ian Smith. Now, I immediately knew who it was. I'd seen a picture on television and picture at our school and so on. So I knew it was the Prime Minister, but he's completely alone. He had driven himself alone to the club. There was no driver, no adjutant, no bodyguards, no policeman visible anywhere. I looked up and down the street, couldn't see a policeman's sight. The Prime Minister had driven himself alone to the club. He stroked my cat, who was sitting on the wall. He smiled at me and walked into the Bulawayo Club. And uh, that's interesting because almost 10 years later, I was in Harare on Samora Michelle Avenue, what they renamed uh, Leander Star Jamison Avenue. They renamed Samora Michelle Avenue after communist dictator cannibal of Mozambique. And Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe came speeding past. And the contrast with Ian Smith's humble arrival couldn't have been more acute. First came eight motorbike outriders. 
then police cars, then armoured luxury Mercedes Benzes with tinted windows, so you couldn't tell which vehicle he was in, followed by another police car, then a truckload of soldiers, so-called, heavily camouflaged, heavy weapons, sirens blaring. All vehicles on both sides of the road had to come to a complete stop. And I was informed by residents, this is how Mugabe travelled every day, and there were cases of people who were deaf and so on being shot uh, off the road uh, and, and injured and, and even people killed because they didn't pull to the side quick enough because the president was driving back and forth down this road with his, what we call Bob Mugabe and his silent whalers. Well, when I mentioned this to Ian Smith, he laughed and he commented that he feared God. He was a lifelong Presbyterian. He believed in the sovereignty of God. He had survived the Second World War. He didn't see what he had to be afraid of. And so during the war years as prime minister, Ian Smith would frequently travel alone without a convoy, scorning the risk of an ambush down to his farm near Guello, which was in the center of the country and uh, on roads very endangered by, by terrorists. He would also often give all his staff at Independence, which was the prime minister's residence, the old government house. He'd give them the weekend off and there'd often be not so much as a cook in the kitchen or a policeman at the gate because Ian Smith said, they wanted to be alone. He couldn't bear people fussing around him. And Ian Smith was a man of integrity. I have a photograph of Ian Smith cycling to work. He's a remarkable statesman, a man of integrity. He said what he meant. He meant what he said. He's an example of honorable man of his word. Over the last 20 years of his life, I frequently had the privilege of having lunch or tea with Mr. Smith. And we read the scriptures and prayed together on a number of occasions. And I interviewed him for radio. And on one occasion, while we were discussing the Second World War, Mr. Smith grew serious. Now, he had devoted six years of his life flying in the Royal Rhodesian Air Force. And with the outbreak of the Second World War, he joined the RRAF. He served in 237 Squadron, that's the Rhodesia Squadron. He flew Hawker Hurricanes, served in Egypt, Lebanon, Persia, Iraq, finally in North African Desert War. He served at El Alamein in Tobruk. He is severely injured in a crash landing in North Africa. He suffered a broken jaw, broken leg, broken shoulder, severe facial wounds. It was thought that his back was broken, but it turned out, as he put it, merely buckled. After five months of recuperating under expert medical attention in Cairo, he returned to active service flying Spitfire Mark 9s. And it was during the Italian campaign 1944 that he was shot down in northern Italy. And he had to jettison his canopy, release his harness, turn the Spitfire upside down so that he could drop free pulling his ripcord and parachuting to safety. And that's not something you could actually uh, practice. Uh, there was no ejector seat or anything like this. You literally had to flip the plane upside down, re uh, jettison the canopy, release the harness, fall upside down, and uh, once he's free, pull the ripcord. And he had to get that absolutely right, where you can imagine. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. You'd need kind of nerves of steel to do that. But for the next five months, Ian Smith evaded enemy patrols, joined up with the local resistance, and later crossed the Alps on foot to link up with the Allied forces in France. So it was very insightful on these times of sitting and speaking with this, this icon of history, one of these great men of the 20th century, Ian Smith. And he said to me one day, we fought on the wrong side. So the real enemy was communism. We didn't realize that at the time, of course, but we were not really fighting for Christian civilization and freedom, as they told us because we were allied to Stalin's Soviet Union. Instead of freeing Europe, we were actually helping Stalin enslave half of it under communism. Not that we knew it at the time, but 
with hindsight, that's what happened. And we discussed some of the catastrophic consequences of the world wars and how Europe had been bullied into abandoning its colonies and protectorates in Africa, how the African people had suffered severely under the dictators who were pawns of the superpowers in the Cold War. And Ian Smith made the comment, it would have been better if Britain had stayed out of the war with Germany and just let Germany smash communism in Russia once for all. Or better still, we could have actually helped free Russia from the communists. That would have spared a lot of people much grief. And what he said was quite jarring and shocking to me because I'd taken the Hollywood and textbook version at face value. And the idea that we had been on the wrong side seemed too staggering a thought to fully comprehend at the time because obviously we were the good guys. That was the way I saw it. And from conversations with Christians throughout Eastern Europe, though, I came to the same conclusion as I've worked throughout Eastern Europe, everywhere from Albania in the south uh, up uh, through Poland and north, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Czechoslovakia, in uh, uh, Poland, uh, East Germany, the whole lot. So uh, I, I know Eastern Europe well. And uh, the persecuted Christians who suffered behind Iron Curtain in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, all these areas, you could not convince them that the Second World War had achieved freedom, democracy, and Christian civilization. And I'd hear from friends in Eastern Europe back in 1980s, they'd say, you betrayed us. What, what do you mean we betrayed you? You allies, I mean, they said, you betrayed us. And they'd tell me about the Yalta Agreement and Operation Keelhaul and Lend-Lease. And the fact is over 100 million Christians in 15 nations in Europe were betrayed in the hands of Stalin's Soviet Union by the Yalta Agreement and by the extremely, excessively generous so-called Lend-Lease, which poured limitless supplies of billions of dollars of tanks and trucks and aircraft and weaponry and every conceivable tool and ammunition into the billions of rounds and millions and tens of millions of shells and vast amounts, more air force and better air force and better tanks than Russia could have ever had into the vile Soviet Union to enable it to survive Operation Barbarossa and to come to dominate more than half of Europe in the Cold War. And the Polish Christians enlightened me as to the Katan Forest Massacre. The Russians informed me of Operation Kielhaw, which betrayed millions of Russians, men, women, and children who immediately following the war were forced by allies, Americans and British, and on occasion French, at gunpoint and bayonet point over the border into the hands of Stalin's executioners, the NKVD, uh, the secret police, uh, who either killed them out of hand or tortured some to death or uh, consigned the rest, especially the women and children, to a life of slavery in the Arctic hellholes of the Gulag Archipelago in Siberia. So there's no questioning the courage and the dedication to duty and the self-sacrifice of the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen who served in the country's armed forces during the First and Second World War. But the wisdom and honesty of the politicians who placed them in the line of fire should certainly be questioned. I don't know what other people are thinking, but when I looked at that sea of red poppies around the Tower of London, I just saw red because I thought 888,000 men died on land and sea and in the air in the First World War. And for what? For what? Why? Why were we on the side of Serbian terrorists 
who had assassinated the Archduke to the Austrian Empire, the heir to the throne of Austria. This is a matter for Austria to deal with, with Serbia. Serbia was a rogue state that was supporting uh, terrorists like the uh, assassins who uh, attacked and murdered not only Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but his beautiful wife, Sophie, on their 10th wedding anniversary, by the way. And yet we ended up on the side of the Serbian terrorists, on the side of the rogue nation that, that was attacking a Christian empire, which was the backbone of Europe, protecting Europe from the Muslim Turks for centuries. And Austria had been Österreich, the Eastern Empire, uh, to protect the, uh, the whole of Europe from, from the Turks. And to think that we were on the side of the Serbian terrorists and that the main result of the First World War was not justice and freedom and democracy and so on. It was the establishing of communism in Russia, what then became the Soviet Union, and uh, the destroying of the central powers, the German Empire and the Austrian Empire, which had been a stabilizing force and a protectioning buffer against the East. And the problems that have come from this... So there's no question about the courage of the men who did their duty as they saw it and as the governments ordered them to. But the wisdom of the politicians who placed them in the line of fire is highly questionable. It was interesting that it was a war hero, uh, a fighter pilot who had put six years of his life into uh, fighting for Britain in the Second World War, like Ian Smith, who could make the observation that it would have been better if we had lost the war or better still stayed out of it, or even better, had actually been on the other side fighting the communists. And he said, there's no doubt that we were on the right side in fighting against Marxist terrorism and standing firm in Rhodesia against the Soviet expansionism from 1965 on the war that we fought in Rhodesia was the right, we were on the right side there. We were defending our home, we were fighting against communism, we plainly were fighting for freedom, we were fighting against terrorism, and there's no doubt that like the 300 Spartans who held the line against the uh, hordes of Persians coming in from the east invading uh, Europe, that the 300 Spartans held the line at the Battle of Thermopylae and bought time for the rest of Greece and by extension Europe uh, to be able to rally to defense to stop this threat from the east. And uh, so Rhodesia did the right thing in fighting against communism in the Cold War. But during that time, our previous allies, the ones under whom we had uh, fought alongside in the First and Second World War and the Malayan conflict, uh, we were betrayed. So uh, it's it's that's the reason why Rhodesia chose to declare its independence on the 11th of November at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1965. Because what the Rhodesian people were saying is, we fought for you, and yet you betrayed us. We thought it was one for all, all for one, and that's the whole point of the Commonwealth. And yet, even though we fought for you faithfully, and Rhodesia, by the way, committed more manpower, percentage of its population, to the war effort than any other portion of the British Empire or Commonwealth. And that's true for the First and the Second World War. So little Rhodesia, uh, while it may not have been numerically strong in terms of numbers, in terms of percentage, we gave a higher percentage than any other country in terms of the amount of people who volunteered for the war. And they didn't even have to have conscription because so much of the manpower volunteered that created a, an economic crisis back at home uh, that uh, it was hard to keep the economy going because so many of the men wanted to go and fight for Britain. And uh, that was, even though Britain had never put any money into Rhodesia, Rhodesia put a lot of blood and toil and sweat and, and sacrifice 
into fighting for Britain. Uh, Rhodesia was a self-governing, self-supporting, uh, self-defending uh, dominion from the very beginning. Uh, it never needed foreign aid. It never needed a British aid. It never needed British soldiers. It never needed uh, any of the British taxpayers to pay for anything because Cecil John Rhodes's British South Africa company covered all the expenses and Rhodesia was very self-governing from the very beginning and self-financing. But to look at, at what happened during the wars and to see how Europe and the West have basically been derailed since 1914, it gives us a whole new perspective because I was a participant in the largest missions conference in history. It was the Cape Town 2010 conference, or some people call it Lausanne 3. And uh, we had 4,200 invited participants from 198 countries who gathered together in Cape Town at the International Cape Town Conference Center. And uh, uh, this was the largest, most representative missions conference in history. And it was on the centenary of the First World Missions Conference. Now, it's interesting because although none of the speakers that I heard none of the official publications or organizers uh, referred to William Carey's vision of a World Missions Conference, w William Carey proposed the First World Missions Conference in 1810. He was so ahead of his time. Um, it was 100 years later before the First World Missions Conference was held. And what's also intriguing is William Carey, the father of modern missions, proposed Cape Town as the venue for the world's first missions conference. He described Cape Town as the utmost part to earth at the junction between East and West, at the port astride two oceans, the Atlantic and Indian, in a shadow of Tabe Mountain to discuss the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so William Keir is so ahead of his time that he proposed the World Missions Conference 100 years before the first one was held in Edinburgh in 1910, and 200 years before it was actually held in Cape Town. So uh, that was intriguing. I've been to many missions conferences, but I never had to travel a shorter distance than to the one in 2010. Well, because I love history, I had to compare the World Missions Conference in Edinburgh in 1910 with our conference that I was part of in 2010. And what did I discover? I was shocked to discover that actually we'd gone backwards. And this became a major theme for, for my uh, doctoral thesis on, on missiology, that the 19th century is the greatest century of missions. The 20th century has become the greatest century, the worst century of persecution. And how did the greatest century of missions get derailed in the worst century of persecution? And the answer is 1914, the First World War. Because in 1914, Christian nations ruled the world. I mean, that's, that's a fact. In 1910, Christian nations ruled virtually every country world, with the exception of China, which was very weak, Japan, who was copying the West to a large extent, and the declining Ottoman Empire. The globe was dominated by Christian powers, especially Protestant Great Britain, Germany, and the United States, and also, of course, uh, French uh, 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 Catholic countries like France and, and uh, Spain and Austria, and Orthodox like Russia. So intriguing that in the century following the Battle of Waterloo, and the defeat of the revolutionary forces of Napoleon, the Congress of Vienna ushered in a century of basically peace in Europe. And the 19th century was a century of astounding achievements, growth and expansion. And in the 19th century, the world was reached. Missionaries went to almost every country in the world, and there was a phenomenal fulfillment of the Great Commission. And in 1910, the consensus of the missions conference was 
the Great Commission was going to be fulfilled by 1960, which happens to be the year I was born. And so they were predicting in 1910 that within a mere 50 years, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. All false religions will be extinct. There'll be no more Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. Christianity will dominate the world. And Bible-believing Protestant Christianity will predominate in every country on the planet by 1960. Well, we all know that didn't happen. What went wrong? After the greatest century of evangelical expansion, 19th century, how did we go to the worst century of persecution? More Christians have died for their faith, have been martyred in the 20th century than all centuries combined. Over 42 million Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century. That's worse than the previous 18 centuries combined. And so uh, what we can look at is the First World War basically was continental suicide. Never before had any continent been so powerful as Europe was in 1914. In 1914, there was no hint of any possible challenge to the British dominance of the world. 1914 marks a far more drastic turning point than 1815, uh, Battle of Waterloo, or 1648, Peace of Westphalia, End of the Thirty Years' War, or any of the other watershed events of history. Nothing could have stopped the positive onward march of Christianity worldwide except that Christians were persuaded by the synagogue of Satan and by the banksters and by the Illuminati, uh, the Bilderbergers, the people behind the scenes, particularly the uh, uh, Freemason uh, manifestation of a lot of this, that they were persuaded to kill one another so enthusiastically and so efficiently. And far more devastating than actual millions of people killed, crippled, injured in the First World War was the damage to the spiritual life of Europe. Do you know, in 1914, 64% of Europe was in church every Sunday. By 1939, before the First World War, it was down to 42% of Europe was in church every Sunday. After the Second World War, it fell to about 4% of Europe was in church every Sunday. And so we can see that the secularization of Europe, the paganization of Europe, the the a decolonialization that was quickly uh, pushed after the Second World War, which was the highest foreign policy goal of the United States, as they bullied Europe to abandon Africa, all of its protectorates and, and uh, provinces or colonies in Africa, to the extent that uh, Africa became one vast killing fields and a playground, if you can use such a word, for the superpowers in their wars. So it's an extraordinary terrible thing that happened. And if people just look at the damage done in Europe during the First and Second World Wars, that's bad enough. But the damage done to Africa, where I live and work, was far more devastating. And Africa went from being a paradise to being a hellhole uh, as a result of the, the wars and Europe's shrinking influence and the rising superpowers of the Soviet Union in the United States and the decolonialization pressure. That's a whole different story. But my evaluating of and comparing Edinburgh 1910 with Cape Town 2010 made it clear to me that spiritually speaking, the 20th century has been the worst century in the history of Christianity. We have lost so much influence. There's probably not a country on the planet that you can call a truly Christian country anymore. And we, many people speak of us being in a post-Christian era. Well, I would like to think we're in a pre-Christian era, uh, but still the reality is we're in a situation where Christianity has been persecuted even in countries traditionally Christian like Britain. And we can see so much prejudice against Christianity, whether it's open air preaching, whether it's 
biblical view of marriage, biblical standards of morality, all these are under attack, not just in the media, but even by governments and by laws. And to a large extent, uh, I think all of this can be traced back to the First and Second World War. And so my father was right when he made the comment that, you know, um, if we could have seen what became of, of Europe after the war, we wouldn't have fought against one another. We would have fought together against the real enemy, uh, which I understand to be the Soviet Union and the communist backers and the people behind communism, the banksters in particular, who were bankrolling this. It's absolutely essential that we understand uh, what went on. I believe in honoring the soldiers. My Facebook profile uh, for Peter Hammond has got the red poppy on my suit jacket label uh, uh, at this time uh, because I'm remembering my father and others who fought uh, during the world wars. I'm honoring and remembering. I'm a chaplain in many of the memorial services uh, that are held at this time of the year. I'm certainly believing in honoring and remembering the sacrifices made by noble, honorable people who did their duty and did what their governments command them to do. But I believe it's vitally important that we evaluate uh, the wisdom and the strategy behind and and the treason behind some of the actions, such as Operation Kielhall, betraying millions of Russians, men, women, children, and Ukrainians and other East Europeans immediately following the war, forced back into the hands of the communists. How does this fit into fighting for freedom and democracy? And why did we have to give billions of dollars and pounds of free aid to the Soviet Union if we were fighting for freedom, justice, Christian civilization, and democracy? And why did we have to betray Poland. Apparently, we went to war to protect Poland, and yet the end of the Second World War is betraying Poland in the hands of the Soviet Union. And the Polish people maintain to this day, uh, it, they've proven that, of course, the Russians did the Katyn Forest Massacre, even though for decades we were taught in our textbooks the lie that the Germans were responsible for murdering the Polish officer corps, whereas uh, now even the Russian government admits and the documentation has come out and there's no question. But they also, to this day, maintain that uh, Britain, uh, along with the United States of America, were behind the assassination of their government in exile. And that was General Sikorsky. General Sikorsky, commander-in-chief of the Polish army in exile and head of state of Polish government in exile during the Second World War, was murdered on the 4th of July, 1943. Uh, his plane... Uh, containing virtually his entire high command and government in exile and his daughter uh, in an American-provided lib liberator, uh, crashed within 16 seconds of taking off from Gibraltar. And uh, the only survivor of the aircraft was the pilot, which is counterintuitive. It's not the way you'd normally think the person in front of an impact is the pilot's normally the first to die in that sort of instance. But everybody in the plane died, but the pilot was not affected which is uh, very strange. And the uh, scuba diver team who uh, went to try and recover the bodies, which was generally not effective, died in strange and mysterious circumstances shortly thereafter in some underwater accident. All the hallmarks of, of intrigue, including the fact that uh, Kim Philby, uh, a known double agent KGB operative working in the British MR6, was on station at that moment in uh, Gibraltar at that time, and all the telephone and other communication records between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and 
and Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Britain, at that time in July 1943, are still sealed for over 80 years. And uh, why would they be sealing that if it's not concealing something? The Polish people point out that it was at that very time that General Sikorsky was insisting on international investigation to contend Forest Massacre. And uh, it was at that very time that the American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt demanded that Winston Churchill get rid of their ally, uh, General Sikorsky. Remember, Poland was meant to be not just Britain's ally, but America's ally. And in fact, ostensibly meant to be the reason why Britain even declared war in Germany in September the 3rd, 1939. So uh, the, the Poles feel very betrayed and they feel to this day that why would you have chosen Stalin over Poland? Why would you have chosen communist dictator, mass murderer over free Christian people? And uh, they, they've got a good question and they've got the right to have that question answered. So on the 11th of November, I remember many things. I'm remembering soldiers who've died in the Bush War that I was involved in, the Bush War. My brother was involved in Rhodesia. I'm, and the one I was involved in, Southwest Africa and Angola. Uh, I'm remembering uh, my father's generation, the Second World War. I'm remembering my grandparents' generation in the First World War and and others who've been involved in the Malayan conflict and and, and the Korean War and, and many others. And I think we can also regard the First and Second World War as the Thirty Years' War, because uh, that's a term used by Patrick Buchanan in his best-selling book, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, how Britain lost its empire and the West lost the world. And he treats the First and Second World War as one war, a Thirty Years' War. And I think he makes a compelling and enlightening case for that, and that this is the beginning of the end of Europe being the superpower. At 1914, Europe was way more powerful militarily, politically, and every other way, and economically than America and Russia. But after the First World War, America was on the way up and Europe was kind of on the way down. And after the Second World War, Europe was almost second power, and uh, Europe was now at the mercy of the superpowers, the Soviet Union and, and the United States, who now were uh, occupying two parts of Europe and uh, in many ways calling the shots. But I'm beginning to think that we could consider what's happened since 1914 as the Hundred Years' War, because we have not been at peace since 1914. And all over the world, you can see there's been ongoing Marxist revolution. And I believe that American President Herbert Hoover's landmark book, Freedom Betrayed, Herbert Hoover's Secret History of the Second World War and its Aftermath, which I've read, 900 pages, it documents the treachery and the treason of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration and the deception operations that misdirected America's arsenal for democracy to salvage Stalin's Soviet Union and to betray Eastern and Central Europe under communist control. Now, this isn't some conspiracy theory. This is United States President Herbert Hoover's landmark book, well-documented, well-footnoted. This is a man on the inside who looked at things, and it's clear. Our real enemy is communism and, of course, the whole New World Order, which is part of it, promoted by degenerate Hollywood, a treacherous United Nations and a state world council churches. And this New World Order has an agenda of one world government, one world religion, one world economy. And this all bears a striking resemblance to the warnings in Revelation 13. And so we need to remember the fallen soldiers. We need to remember Rhodesia's bold and brave stand against communist terrorism. 
But we should also reflect on how the greatest century of missions was derailed in the worst century of persecution. And there's no doubt in my mind that if our ancestors could have seen the results that flowed from the First and Second World War, they would not have fought against each other. They would have fought side by side together against a real enemy. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Well, uh, much food for thought there. Excellent presentation as always. I've been working behind the scenes while you've been talking, looking certain things up. Now, firstly, if we go to Remembrance Day on Wikipedia, it says Remembrance Day is observed on the 11th of November in most countries to recall the end of hostilities of First World War on that date in 1918. Hostilities formally ended at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. But now, if you look at D-Day, uh, and we jump now over to tomatobubble.com or tomatobubble.com, wherever you live in the world, which is, of course, Mike King's site, MS King, who wrote The Bad War. And he's got an article on D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, starting at the 6th hour of the 6th day of the 6th month of 1944, the Allied armies of the evil New World Order based in England successfully crossed the English Channel. The cost was as high as nearly 10,000 men dying, storming the fortified beaches of Normandy. And uh, it continues. So they, the funny thing about that day as well, of course, uh, the sixth hour, the sixth day, the sixth month is, of course, 666. But if you look at 1944 as well, and you add 1944 together, you get 18, which you divide by uh, is three sixes or 18. So it was uh, D-Day, a gift to Stalin, as uh, Mike King writes. But now if we go mm. on to Wikipedia, now bear in mind I've just said about Remembrance Days quite clearly said 11th hour of the 11th month uh, 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 on the 11th day of the 11th month 11 11 11 now when you go to Normandy landings or that's how they categorize D-Day on Wikipedia they don't say anything about the sixth hour of the sixth day of the sixth month but they say allied infantry and armored divisions began landing on the coast of France at 6 30 a.m so this is clearly something that they're trying to cover up and now if we move over to uh, general pattern now this is quite interesting because while um Peter was speaking I was reminded of the general pattern quote and I knew I got it wrong uh but uh, I went to webcrawler.com my search engine of choice and I typed in general pattern we killed the wrong pig now bearing in mind this is while I'm recording the show with Peter I'm looking down the search results and third down it's a YouTube video general pattern we're fighting the wrong enemy and the two-line description in the search results is a re-upload of a documentary put together by Rhodesian missionary now based in South Africa Dr Peter Hammond this guy's put the pieces together for me and that's where it it cuts off and you'd have to click on the YouTube video which I'm not going to do at the moment so I found that rather amusing as that came up while I was recording the show with you Peter third result down for that search term so what I did as well was I put that same search term general pattern we killed the wrong pig into google and of course your video is nowhere to be seen on that front page i'd like to move on mm. as well to um i'll hand over to you for uh, general pattern what you can tell us about that but you said about the idea we know that the second world war was justified by the so-called allies because they said that germany invaded poland well hitler went into poland because german uh 
citizens or people of German ancestry who regard themselves as German were being slaughtered by Polish people. And so they went in there to protect those people. And that justified the Second World War, according to the so-called Allies. So if it was so important for Poland to be independent from invaders, why was it acceptable at the end of the Second World War for them to be occupied by the Soviet Union? That's a question that they never want to answer. So with all that information, let's go back to Peter for his comments. Peter, please go ahead. Yes, I've got many friends in Poland. I've had uh, wonderful times of fellowship and ministry in Poland, and they ask those questions. And interestingly enough, I... Uh, I was uh, traveling with a South African flag on my um, lapel pin, and uh, Polish people thanked me that the South African Air Force were the only people who dropped aid to them in 1944 during the Warsaw Uprising. And I thought that was intriguing that they knew that. And then I I thought, you know, I know my history quite well. Why don't I know about this? And uh, I went into the history books, and the history books said the Royal Air Force dropped off aid to them, and uh, thought, but that's not what the poll said. And so I did further checking in South Africa and found that it was the South African Air Force that did the the Warsaw Ghetto um, um, resupply. And they flew in there. And the only ones were the South African Air Force. But later, if you find older history books, they acknowledge it was South Africa. But after 1960, when South Africa um, basically uh, left the uh, Commonwealth, uh, they rewrote the history books to say Royal Air Force instead of uh, the South African Air Force. And it just shows how they can change history at different times, such as, you know, the Germans killed the uh, Polish officer Korn Katan, even though everyone knew it was the Russians because more convenient. But the cavalier way in which history can be changed. And, uh, for example, you might have seen the Battle of Britain film. And the Battle of Britain film is, is very well-made propaganda. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the things that a South African immediately notices is that the, the character that's played by Robert Shaw is based on uh, Sailor Malone. Now, Sailor Malone was a South African pilot who happens to have been the greatest fighter ace in, on the Allied side. He shot down uh, more planes. Uh, he had more air victories than anyone else on the Allied side. That includes the Americans or the British or Canadians, anyone else, Australians, so on. And he always had a shoulder flash that had South Africa across it. Well, in the Battle of Britain form, they not only had Robert Shaw not use a South African accent, but they took off the South Africa soldier flash because in 1966, South Africa was no longer popular. And so to think that major films that pride themselves on historic accuracy would be willing to doctor things from the from the incidental to the very serious. And uh, I, I just am continually aghast at the doctoring of history. We talk about fake news, but I'm sorry to say there's a lot of fake history, too. And where are the films on the murder and assassination of General Patton? Where are the films of uh, the Katan Forest Massacre? Where are the films on Operation Keelhaul? And so many other aspects where ad nauseum get fictionalized, heavily fictionalized Second World War films, which are anti-German. But what about films that are showing the atrocities of the Soviets, for example, against the Poles? Uh, where are the, uh, where's the other side? Has any film ever shown the Allies betraying three million Russian men, women and children who are living in Europe, many of whom have actually been born in Europe, whose parents had fled in 1917 from the Bolshevik Revolution, but they all had to be forced back at the order of Stal- uh, of not just Stalin, but Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Eisenhower overseeing this. Uh, why do we not get these facts? Well, obviously, um, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the reason why most people are ignorant 
about the greatest Holocaust in history, the murder of 66 million Christians in Russia, is because the very people who control our media are the same people responsible for the massacres of Christians in the Soviet Union. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And can you confirm that uh, General Patton indeed say, said we slaughtered the wrong pig, I believe, in relation to the Second World War? He felt yeah. that uh, we should have well, gone against the Soviet Union. He said he said that and he said a lot of other things. And, and these were published by his daughter. It's called the Patton Papers. And the Patton Papers are correspondence that he had back with his family throughout the war. And, of course, he was killed before he could come home and publish his memoir so his daughter did that later and it's extraordinary to see he said we fought the wrong enemy he said a lot of things like that we've we've destroyed the the best race in europe and the greatest nation in europe and uh, he didn't realize uh, what he said the germans were never really our enemy and the russians had never been our allies and so general Patton, you can understand why he got assassinated by his own side when you see what he wrote and what he intended to do amongst other things general Patton said i killed germans in combat Eisenhower's killing them as prisoners of war in peacetime. Uh, and uh, uh, he was outraged that more Germans were dying in Allied prison camps of starvation and thirst uh, than had even died in combat on the Western Front. And so uh, uh, General Patton had a strong sense of, of what's right and wrong. And I found interesting, my father um, didn't have a very good view of American soldiers in general, but he had a very great respect for General George Patton as, as a real soldier soldier and a man who who was in the front with his men in the lead tank and so on. So uh, I've also found people in Germany and Russia and Ukraine who also have a very high regard for General Patton. Unlike most other generals, most soldiers I know uh, who fought in the Second World War despised Eisenhower as a politician in uniform, uh, but they highly respected Patton. And, and uh, interesting enough, the first person who I was hosted by in the United States, uh, General Ben Parton, U.S. Air Force uh, general and scientist, he's the one who first told me that General Patton was murdered by his own side and, and put me in the direction of the Patton papers and enabled me to see that side. So you, you're quite right, and I've done a, a documentary and video on this and uh, just on the assassination of General George Patton, and we've done a show on that too. So I would encourage our listeners to look those up and get the full facts. That's well worth knowing. Once you get Patton's view on the war, uh, it puts a lot of pieces into place. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And what we'll do is I'll click on that link. I'll send it over to Peter after we record the show. Make sure it's the right one. And I'll include that in the post for the show, com. The one last question I had for Peter when he was talking about Patton, I made a note of General Ben Partin to see if Peter had ever spoken to him about it. But we've got synchronicity here, it seems, because Peter referred to General Ben Partin there. So before we go, Peter, can you let the audience know where they can find your work? Yes, our mission, front, uh, frontlinemissionsa.org website, so www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Uh, that's the main website. My email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za, or Z-A as the Americans may say it. And uh, you can find us on Facebook too, Peter Hammond or Frontline Fellowship. And uh, today I've got the poppy uh, on my suit uh, collar showing that we are remembering the soldiers. And I think the best way we can honor the soldiers is to expose the politicians who put them in harm's way, for many cases, duplicitous reasons. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic presentation, as always. You have been listening to The Real Story 
of 11th of November and Remembrance Day. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you on our Thursday slot next week. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, bye for now. <laughs>